Welcome to the 225th episode of the Reading and Writing Podcast. Stay tuned for my interview with Tim Powers, World Fantasy Award-winning science fiction and fantasy author. Tim Powers is the author of Last Call, The Anubis Gates, On Stranger Tides, Declare, and many other novels. Stay tuned for the interview. Welcome back to the Reading and Writing Podcast. My guest today is Tim Powers, author of the new novel Medusa's Web. Powers is the author of many novels, including Earthquake Weather, Expiration Date, Last Call, and On Stranger Tides. Tim, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Happy to be here. Sure. Well, if someone listening hasn't heard about Medusa's Web yet, how would you describe your new novel? Oh, let's see. Uh, It's... uh supernatural adventure involving an old decaying mansion in the Hollywood Hills, which uh, the inhabitants are being plagued by consequences from supernatural things that happened in the movie industry in the 1920s, involving people like Rudolph Valentino and Ala Nazimova and uh, those sort of shadowy old black and white glamorous figures and and do you remember the original idea or impetus for writing medusa's web i think i do um just idly reading for fun i read a biography of rudolph valentino and it noted that on his deathbed two priests were required to administer last rites one priest tried it solo and found himself uh, frustrated and had to run off and get a, a second priest to come and assist. And I thought, what what would make that happen? What obstacle did that first priest run into exactly? So I began reading up extensively on Valentino because it had stopped being recreational reading and become research reading at that point. And then inevitably, if you read very deeply in any any nonfiction topic, if you are looking for fictionally useful hooks to hang supernatural backstory on, you 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 can't help but find dozens. Sure, sure. Well, I've I've heard you describe your elaborate research process for a novel. Was the research for Medusa's Web the same? Yes. Um, as soon as I figured that um, this anomaly with Valentino was important, I started to read up on everybody associated with him and Hollywood at the time and Hollywood now, um, and as with every book I plot, I don't arrive with a story. I don't arrive with a plot. I go looking through the research for, as I think of it, things that are too cool not to use. You know, you'll find this strange event. Uh, this uh, Natasha Rambova was shot in the leg by her lover, a Russian dancer and choreographer. And you think, okay, obviously that is involved somehow. God knows how at this point, but note it. 
And after I find 20 or 30 things in the research that are obviously too cool not to use, uh, my task at that point is connect the dots and discover what the plot of the novel will turn out to be. So I really let the research dictate my eventual story. I sort of think of it as a system for somebody who has no intrinsic imagination. (laughs) Instead of having to make things up, I simply have to find things and recognize them. I suppose there's some virtue in being able to recognize uh, the, the glittery, useful items. And, and do you know what it was about 1920s Hollywood that fascinated you? I'm sorry, what was that? Do you know what it was about 1920s Hollywood that fascinated you? Yeah, it was a very wide-open society. Uh, it, um, there was no income tax. There was no movie code. Um, everybody was making incredible amounts of money. And uh, every every inclination people had could be pursued to the death. Um, drugs, alcoholism, weird sex, weird occult interests, um, astrology, fortune telling. Um, it was uh, necessarily brief because I don't think a society like that can sustain itself very long before burning out as it did with poor Fatty Arbuckle, who I think was framed, and uh, various murders uh, and descents into madness and suicides. I think the burnout was inevitable, but during its brightly flaring peak from, say, maybe 1915 to, well, 1927, when the silent movies ended, uh, it was a fascinatingly uh, libertine society, uh, and not just in the obvious senses of drink and sex and drugs, but um, weird occult stuff, uh, strange temples in the Hollywood Hills, uh, uh, secret societies, and... Um, this kind of mysterious goings-on is especially striking, I think, in that Los Angeles setting, uh, in that sort of sun-drenched palm trees, uh, semi-desert sort of uh, locale. Sure. <clears throat> and what was the appeal of the occult for um, those actors and directors and and, and Hollywood types, was it? Well, uh, the whole spiritualism fad of um, the late 19th century was still very strong. And uh, they, things like astrology were very, uh, you know, popular and relied on. And then, of course, I felt free to exaggerate uh the actual 
occult pursuits of all of them. But um, it wasn't it wasn't a a stretch because um, people like Valentino and his uh, quote wife unquote Natasha Rambova uh, and the Russian emigre Ala Nazimova were fascinated by. Uh, sort of supernatural influences in the book I make much of Nazimova's movie Salome uh, silent movie of course uh, and if you watch that movie you can't imagine how she imagined that it could ever be popular because it's murky and obscure and stilted and grotesque um, but very spooky, very, very strongly weird. Uh, you watch it and you think, okay, what did she really mean by this? She can't have meant it to be, you know, a popular movie like The Sheik. Um, she, was, she was meaning something else by it. Right. And, of course, I, I approach all this data with a kind of uh, honorary... Uh, paranoid schizophrenic squint. Uh, I'm not approaching my research the way a, a rational scholar would. I'm approaching it looking for stuff that could be interpreted as uh, supernatural intrusions. Gotcha. Well, we're talking about 1920s Hollywood. I'm, I'm curious, um, in terms of modern Hollywood, your book on Stranger Tides was the basis for the fourth Pirates of the Caribbean movie with Johnny Depp. What, what was that experience like for you? Well, it was very nice, of course, um, because Disney could have said, Powers, you didn't invent Blackbeard the Pirate. You didn't invent the Fountain of Youth. Why should we? Why should we buy this book of yours about those things? Um, so it was very nice that Disney did actually buy the book. Um, and then, as soon as they optioned it and began doing work on it, I was thinking, I wonder if they'll. I, I mean, I live only an hour from Los Angeles. I wonder if they'll. Uh, want me to come along and sit in on a plotting session which they somehow got along without <laughs> um, but um, I didn't mind that at all um, and then when the movie finally came out of course it had nothing in common with my book except Blackbeard and the, the Fountain, Fountain of Youth and oceans, ships swords um, but we did get to go watch them filming one evening in Los Angeles and got to talk briefly with Johnny Depp and Rob Marshall, the director, talked about Hunter Thompson with Johnny Depp. And we got to go to the premiere and my book came back into print. Um, so really I think it was, um, the ideal way for such things to work out. I've never figured that movies have any obligation to 
very closely resemble books they may be based on. Um, I've always figured that if, if someone were to buy a book of mine and then tell me, well, Powers, we've had to make some changes, um, it's it's going to be a, a animated musical with dancing hamsters. I would say, cool, carry on. <laughs> Great. Well, I know you, you've talked before about your friendship and interaction with the writer Philip K. Dick. Um, and as you know, interest in Dick's work continues today. The Man in the High Castle is now a TV series via Amazon, and there are discussions of a Blade Runner sequel. What do you think Dick would think of today's world if he were alive? We now live with ubiquitous information, but also there's extensive state surveillance of citizens in the U.S. and abroad. Um, I'm just curious what you think about that. He would certainly think he had predicted it all. Um, I mean, the way advertisements now, if you go online, they're uh, aimed directly at you. If you bought cat food recently, suddenly you're getting a lot of ads for cat food. Exactly. And, and the way, apparently it's true that new television sets eavesdrop on you unless you specifically turn that function off. And uh, they, I, I swear I'm not making this up, um, they can eavesdrop on your conversations and then tailor advertisements to directly to you based on what they heard you say. Um, and certainly that's a very phildic uh, concept. I think he'd, I think he'd be largely alarmed <laughs> by, <laughs> by the current world. Um, but at the same time, intensely interested. He was always uh, a very, involved in, you know, keeping up with political and social developments. Um, one thing I always like to note is that the general caricature of him that seems to be, you know, the popular impression of who he was is, is very inaccurate. Uh, the general impression of Philip K. Dick is that he was a, drug-addled hermit who imagined he talked to God all the time. And actually, he was a very rational, funny, uh, very well-read and erudite, and very generous and kind uh, friend. That's great to know. Well, I know that over the years you've taught writing. What writing advice would you offer for listeners who may be working on their own novels or short stories? Do you have any kind of overarching um, uh, advice for, for writers who haven't yet published? Oh, I suppose I do. Sure. Um, obvious. There's obvious advice, but it doesn't harm to remind people. Um, obviously, you need to read infinitely. Uh, you need to read all the time all sorts of things, not simply the area you want to write in. Um, because the wider your reading is, the bigger your toolbox of possible effects is. And, of course, you need to write all the time. Um, and I'm echoing Heinlein here, but you need to finish what you write. I know when I was in college, I every evening or so I would write chapter one on a piece of paper and write a page and a half 
And a couple nights later, I would pull out a fresh piece of paper and write chapter one and write <laughs> a page and a half. So I wound up with a thousand page and a half of chapter ones, but none of them ever went any further than that. And it was a big revelation to learn that it's not enough to write a thousand words a day. They have to be on the same story <laughs> until it's finished. Um, and then, of course, you have to get it out to editors. Um, this is all such obvious stuff. Um, it's a good idea to, if you've got a short story, to take away the first couple pages and let the story start with the next complete sentence. See how it looks that way. Uh, it's often an improvement. With novels, it's often a good idea to drop the first chapter and see how it looks if the book starts with what you had thought was the second chapter. Um, Elmore Leonard said, when you're writing a book, leave out the parts that readers skip over, which impressed me. Um, also, I do like to start in media res, uh, as if you've just switched on a video camera eavesdropping on strangers. So at first, they'll, the characters will obviously know what they're doing and why it's urgent, but you, the recently arrived intruder, won't yet know why they're all so excited. You'll catch on gradually as they continue to talk and act. Um, much better to do it that way, I think, than to prepare with any kind of uh, slow opening which is supposed to establish characters or something. Like I like to start with a line of dialogue um, and not say, immediate, not immediately give the character's name. Um, it always strikes me that if you start a story with George Jones opened the door and walked down the, the sidewalk to his mailbox. If you give the character's name in the first sentence, it has a sort of a once-upon-a-time feel. It's sort of telegraphing that this is fiction, this is made up. Another trick I like to use is, um, I think Hemingway said, you shouldn't stop at the end of a scene or a chapter you should stop in the middle of some sequence so that next day when you resume work, you're simply continuing something that's already rolling. And I like to take that to the extreme of stop in the middle of a sentence, end the day's work with an incomplete sentence. That way, when you start up next day, it's not going to be like pushing a car uphill to get it started all you've got to do to begin the day's work is simply complete a sentence and you're moving. Sure. I hope some of that is of use. Yes. Well, well, you mentioned earlier your, your research process and building this, um, uh, I guess an outline or framework with all of uh, the, the research that you've done and kind of connecting the dots between um, different events that you, that you want to try to, to weave into your novel. Um, after you've done that, what is kind of your basic writing process? I mean, do you write at a certain time every day? Do you have any kind of, you know, for the lack of a better word, kind of writing rituals yourself? I mean, the reason I asked is you just mentioned about stopping in the middle of a sentence. I was wondering what works for you in terms of a writing process. 
Uh, well, once I've got the research all laid out and, and a plot concocted from it, um, I like to take a giant sheet of paper, like from an artist's sketch pad, and make a giant calendar with each square a good, I don't know, six inches square. Uh, and then I like to write the events of the story in the squares of the calendar. That way I can put that up on the wall and look at it and see what comes next um, and what happened a week ago and what's not going to happen for another week yet in the action. And that's a pretty good cure for any kind of writer's block because you can see what you've got to do next. And right now I mostly write from 8 p.m. till midnight. Four hours seems like plenty. Uh, if I can stay out of YouTube. Um, and I like to do a thousand words a day. That seems like a generally agreed on decent amount of work for a day. It's only four typed pages in the old typewriter days. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I, I have to admit, I always do have the computer. I always have uh, Google ready because I frequently need to go to Wikipedia to see, well, when was this guy born? Uh, Where is this place exactly? Um, And I've found Google Earth terribly useful. Uh, You say, well, uh, this this corner in Los Angeles or Cincinnati, I, I... and it's not going to be a big scene, but I want to establish it. Uh, with Google Earth, you can go to that place and drop the little orange man into the street and take a 360-degree view around. Or with uh, YouTube, for example, one story recently, I had somebody on the top of the dome of St. Paul's Cathedral in London, and I thought, I've never been up there. How wide is the walkway? How tall is the railing? I assume there's a railing. Uh, if you turn around and look behind you, what what does the spire look like? Well, obviously, thousands of people have been up there and videoed it and posted it on YouTube. <laughs> and in fact, any situation you can think of, skiing down Mount Everest, uh, being at the bow of a sailing ship in a storm, you want to describe it, but you hope never to actually be in that position yourself. But somebody has done it and put it on YouTube. <laughs> but yeah, I do a thousand words a day when I'm in the writing stage of it. And ideally, my outline and calendar will be thorough enough that I won't have to stop and do some figuring and calculating and plotting and outlining. Although inevitably there are periods where I think, wait a sec, you're jumping from here to there. How does that, how does that work? And I have to stop and talk to myself in a scratch file to figure it out. Gotcha. So are there writers, are there writers or books, either fiction or nonfiction, that you've read recently that you would recommend or mention that, that kind of struck a chord with you? Oh, sure, sure. Uh, recently, I was thinking of doing a book involving mountain climbing just because I read John Krakauer's 
into thin air about, I think it was a 1996 expedition to Mount Everest, which went horribly wrong. And there were a couple of points when I was reading it that I thought, you know, you could, you could hang a story on this. Um, and then just for fun, I'm always reading Michael Connolly, uh, sort of Los Angeles police procedural courtroom dramas. Uh, he has a new one out that I've got to get. Um, and for kind of retro reading, I'm, I have to admit, I'm in the middle of rereading Peter O'Donnell's series about the character Modesty Blaze. Sure. Uh, those were from the 1960s mainly, but they're right. terrific books. If I could write as well as that guy, I would be very pleased. <laughs> so, so what is next for you beyond Medusa's Web? Have you started thinking or planning? Yeah. Um, in fact, I um, I'm just about ready to start writing. I think. Um, I think the research and plotting are very nearly at the point where I could make my calendar. Um, and it's going to be in Los Angeles again, though not a sequel to anything. Um, and it's going to involve freeways, um, which have always seemed kind of mystical to me. And of course, supernatural. Um, it, uh, I find Los Angeles just uh endless well of possibilities for fiction um it uh it's not as obvious a city as san francisco say or new orleans or paris i mean anybody can fall in love with those cities in a couple of hours los angeles you have to kind of spend some time to sort of be charmed by it Sure. Well, again, we've been speaking with Tim Powers, author of the new novel Medusa's Web, which is on sale now. So go grab a copy. And Tim, thanks for doing this interview. Oh, you bet. It's been fun.